This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This week, WNPR kicks off its latest series of stories looking into the opioid crisis in local communities. Harriet Jones is here, and she'll be reporting on how uh, the medical community and policymakers have treated this crisis sweeping America very differently from the substance abuse problems seen in the 80s and 90s. We'll also hear from the state agency tasked with providing help to residents struggling with substance abuse and mental health issues. And we'll talk with people who understand addiction. Two former drug users who've been in recovery will talk about what worked for them and what didn't. We want to hear from you, too. From prescription drug abuse to heroin use, how have you seen the opioid crisis in your community? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome into the studio WMPR's business reporter, Harriet Jones. Good morning. And also here with us is Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman. She's commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So we're going to start off with Harriet um, to talk a little bit about your report that WMPR listeners will be listening to later this week. Um, In your reporting, tell us first about the demographic, demographic rather breakdown of this opioid epidemic here in Connecticut. Yeah, so I was interested to take a look at how this particular epidemic looks from the black community. And of course, you know, we like to base our reporting on good data. So it's interesting. We do actually have very clear statistics on how different ethnic groups are affected both by drug overdoses in general and by this particular opioid crisis in particular. Trend CT, which is a project of the Connecticut Mirror, um, took a look. They analyzed figures from the U.S. Census Bureau and also from the um, Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Connecticut. And they took a look um, at three years, almost four years of data, actually, from the beginning of 2012 to the fall of 2015. They analyzed the the demographic data around almost 2,000 drug overdoses. Um, and they, they found, in fact, that drug overdose deaths in general are more common among white people. And that trend holds true for opioid-related deaths also. Um, so the statistic they're looking at is the rate of death per 10,000 people. Overall, over all state residents, the rate of death per 10,000 people was 5.3. But if you break that down by racial groups, for whites, it was 6.2 per 10,000. For blacks, 4.1 per 10,000. For Hispanics, 4 per 10,000. So there's there's actually a big disparity there between the different um, racial groups in Connecticut. And actually, over that almost four-year period, we saw that gap actually widening because um, deaths in the white community continue to increase and actually deaths from overdose in the black community have actually decreased over that period. So that gap is being exacerbated. Um, If you also, another kind of interesting demographic issue that's revealed by this analysis is um, some interesting statistics about age because we might think of the kind of the stereotype of the drug user as perhaps a young person. But if you look at the statistics, more than half of overdose deaths are among people older than 40. Uh, you know, that's something that was noted to me in my reporting, or perhaps not thinking about those people who are older, perhaps even the elderly now, who perhaps are on prescription medication, having trouble with it. And you see overdose deaths there also. But there's also a racial disparity when you look at those median ages of who overdoses. Um, black victims of overdose are on average 48, white victims 41, and Hispanic victims 30. So there's a very different profile of who's you know, becoming addicted and who's suffering from overdose deaths 
in different racial groups. And Harriet, is there a breakdown of the overdose deaths in the state of Connecticut, those who have uh, passed away because of an overdose of a prescription drug versus heroin, which we know is very um, cheap and very in, in demand and a lot of supply on the streets? Yeah, I don't have those figures in front of me. That would be interesting to know whether that, that, that I know they do uh, analyze very closely um, at the chief medical examiner's office, what's in people's bloodstream and what, um, you know, what has caused the death as closely as they can. I'll turn to Commissioner uh, Miriam Delphin Ripman again. Uh, she's the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. So when you see the breakdown, obviously uh, not news to you, because I would assume your agency is, is looking at um, the breakdown throughout the state of Connecticut. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I just want to say, Harry, you know, I, I just so I think it's wonderful that, that you're looking at the data that way. Um, often it, it's so critical to be able to really disaggregate data overall and to see what are the trends and patterns. So I really applaud your work in that area. Um, we do the same thing. And so when we look at our data um, for individuals that are coming into DEMIS accessing services, um, we're actually finding that, um, that uh, largely white males are accessing services uh, the most for heroin and opiate uh, um, addiction, uh, and then followed by Hispanic Americans. And white Americans we find just at 10%, so 10% of the individuals who are ac accessing services, excuse me, are, are African American. And 30% uh, are Latino American, and a much higher percentage um, are, are white American. So, so Harry, in your reporting, you wanted to look at uh, the disparity of how um, you know the medical community and policymakers have dealt with um, crises like this in the past. And when we look at the uh, the crack epidemic of the '80s and '90s, and the people that suffered from that addiction were obviously penalized. Many of them still in jail. So, can you talk about um, some of the community members that you've spoken to um, and how they see that disparity? Right. I was very curious about what the reaction would be, uh, and you know. What's happening now is viewed with some frustration, maybe also some bitterness by some people in the black community, you know, because as you say, faced with a very similar epidemic in the 80s and 90s, you know, people were dubbed as crackheads, they were demonized, they were called super predators, they were jailed. Whereas now, you know, the face of this crisis is white high school kids, white middle-aged people, and the response is one of kind of removing the stigma and trying to reach out with treatment. Um, Tamara Lanier is the criminal justice chair of the NAACP in Connecticut, um, and she put it this way to me. Particularly when you talk to someone who has been arrested, maybe aggressively prosecuted, and was sentenced to a significant amount of time for an offense that people are now not even being arrested for. Uh, I don't know that you can atone for that. I don't know that you can give that back to that person. So that, that was, you know, something that I commonly heard. And people that I talked to did say they think that the approach that people are taking now is probably closer to what's effective and what we should be doing. But, you know, they wonder why wasn't it available to people in their community back then? And that's something that I heard from Pastor Joseph Coleman of St. John's Church in Groton. Oh, now you hear the sore spot. You hear the spot that makes me angry. When crack cocaine was being used by my people, that's who were using it, the black community in, in society was using crack cocaine. Even I remember Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York demonized it to the point that most of my people went to jail for crack cocaine for years where white people who were using cocaine 
They didn't go to jail as, as long as much as people of color who were using crack cocaine. But it's from the same product. One is the cheap version, and the other is the expensive version. Okay, let's roll it up to now. Now the white community is upset because their people are using heroin. Our people are not as much in the heroin as the white community. They're not, they haven't stopped using crack or, 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 or coke, but they are not as much on heroin. So the thing is, why are you so upset or, or so willing now to help because you see the heroin taking your kids away when you watch mine being uh, devastated and you weren't up in arms? So how should I feel as a black man or even a black woman that you are so upset now that your children are dying. The thing is, we got to work with this together. This is not just a, a white problem now. This wasn't just a black problem. This is a community problem. And we better work together because if we don't, it's going to destroy all of us. Wow, what a powerful voice yeah, in, in the Groton community. Um, so obviously he said that was a sore spot when you look at how mm -hmm. um, African-Americans were treated um, when the crack epidemic um, was ravaging their communities. Uh, but I'll turn back to Commissioner um, Delphin Rittman from Demas. Um, obviously a good thing that we see this as a public health crisis. It's not about penalizing people anymore. But tell me when you started to see that shift, when we, we see that we're not going to demonize people who are addicts. At least most of us aren't. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, this this is, uh, as the pastor mentioned, this is something that we're seeing across all communities in Connecticut, uh, all communities, all demographic groups, and a wide range of age groups. Um, and I appreciate what the pastor said about, you know, this is something that we have to work at, at work together on as a community. Um, and, and absolutely, I think it really does take a community approach. And that's part of the not demonizing individuals who are struggling with addiction. Um, addiction is, is like any other illness, and so really needs a, a community-based approach. It needs an all-hands-on-deck approach. Um, this crisis, what we're seeing here in Connecticut, very much mirrors what we're seeing in other parts of the country. Um, so we really do need an all-hands-on-deck community approach. And when, did you, when do you think that shift happened? Was it when we started seeing these overwhelming numbers of people dying? Um, I mean, when we look at our own data, uh, we have seen significant increases since uh, since 2011, um, and I, I think that was part of the part of the shift. Um, the fact that we're we're starting to increasingly see greater numbers of individuals both overdosing and and unfortunately dying, um, and I think all of that has contributed to this shift. Now that we're seeing um, numbers, if we look at our data this year. Our data is, suggests that we may surpass where we were last year, um, again, across multiple communities, both in terms of overdoses um, and in terms of deaths. So, so this is definitely a challenge. And the commissioner is going to stay with us uh, for the uh, full hour. Um, we'll hear more about some of the programs that the state has. But I'm also interested in, you know, are we starting to see some numbers of, of the prevention efforts actually making an um, impact? So we'll find out later in the show. I do want to take a call now. And if you want to join the conversation, please do, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. I believe Christopher is calling from Mystic. Christopher, you're on where we live. Yeah, hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Yeah, I got the Bluetooth going here. Um, you know, I had a few things to say. You know, one thing is, 
I think it's I think it's great to sort of look at the statistics and see, you know, um, look at the data and analyze the data. Uh, but to make it a racial issue, I think uh, yeah, we could compare it to you know to the crack epidemic, but that's not really incredibly helpful. Um, you know, I've been taking care of people for over ten years. I just opened up my own office, and this is affecting people across all races. And it's it's not really the people who are overdosing. It's a that's a huge problem. Anytime someone dies, it's a huge problem. Um, but what's really a problem is the people who are still struggling daily, and you know, losing their jobs, the, the effects on their families, their childrens. So, again, I don't want to downplay any importance of uh, you know preventing overdosing, which is a big deal. But it's the people that are suffering daily. That's we really have to focus on that. All right, Christopher, thank you for your call. Did you want to respond, Harriet? Um, yeah, you, you asked earlier when you, you know, when can we pinpoint when the shift began? And it is very interesting when you go to some of these forums, you know, roundtables where people are trying to discuss what should we do about this, how many people who are in what you might call the kind of more decision-making class, so police officers, lawmakers, um, you know, people who are in official positions will stay, say, my child, my child's friend my brother, my cousin. It's, there's that feeling of no family left untouched or no family that doesn't know someone who is affected. You know, like Christopher was saying, there's many people who are suffering daily with this, who are struggling with addiction, who are trying to get into treatment programs, who are trying to, you know, face their disease. Um, and there's that feeling that, you know, maybe now um, white families are more affected. It does go across across all racial backgrounds, certainly now. But, you know, now people who are in the position to make public policy um, and to affect criminal justice policy are also seeing it in that very personal way. They're, they have personal testimony of how this is affecting them. And I think that's where we see the shift. And before we go to break, I want to turn back to Commissioner uh, Delphin Rittman from uh, Demas, uh, Christopher, making the point that um, we shouldn't focus too much on on the racial disparity because now it's uh, impacting everyone. But I'm curious: has the damage been done in the African American community from how they were, were how they were um, looked upon if they were an addict in the 80s and 90s? If their loved ones are in prison or are still were able to get out or are still in prison, are there you know? Is there ways or does it, does it impact their uh, likelihood of wanting to reach out to get help? Do they trust the people in the elected official positions? Um, I'm just curious, you know, what any damage that's been done because of, of that look so long ago? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly there may be some individuals that um, have concerns about whether their needs are going to be able to be met uh, if they access services. I think uh, overall, though, cer- certainly recently especially, there have been forums and a lot of information dissemination um, across the African-American community as well as other communities. And so my hope is that uh, that we'll see um, a turning of the tide or even an um, increased likelihood of individuals accessing services if they need it. Um, but certainly there there is some sentiment that, you know, why access services if my needs may not be met? Uh, but again, messaging we're trying to get out there is that, uh, you know, access help and recovery is possible. Uh, and we, we do pay attention to culture, to race, ethnicity, um, any, any areas that are important for a person we try to incorporate into the care process. I'll take another call before break. Uh, Sam's been holding from Windsor. Sam, thank you for your patience. What's your question or comment? No problem. Uh, here's a comment I would like to make. I, I think it's good. I'm glad to hear you guys um, talking about not demonizing drug addicts 
Uh, I think the racial disparity thing is true and is kind of ironic, and I find it kind of funny that now that the chickens are coming home to roost for the so-called decision-making class, all of a sudden people are seeing addiction in a new light. Um, you know, it's like that saying, you know, when it's a recession, when it affects other people, it's a depression when it affects you. Um, I like to bring up that the research, which has been around since the 1970s, where, you know, rats in a cage given access to only water or cocaine will overdose on the cocaine. But if you put rats in a cage with other rats and give them other things to do and you give them access to the same cocaine and the same water, they never o- overdose or they barely use the cocaine at all. And I think that could translate to humans. I, I see a lack of connection in, um, in uh, our communities these days. Uh, there's a lack of good jobs. People who have jobs, you know, are still struggling. They, they feel hopeless. They feel beaten down by life. And that makes them want to connect with something. And a lot of times, jobs are where people find their purpose. And if you don't have a good job or you don't feel good about your future, you're going to try and find something to cope with that uh, feeling of hopelessness. And I think that's the real issue that's driving the increase in drug addiction. Until we work on building a better society that works for everyone, where people can feel like they're a part of the community, this problem is going to keep increasing. I think putting people in cages, you know, prisons is like the worst solution. And we should look at, um, you know, what Portugal has done with decriminalizing drugs. Um, And we should look at increasing treatment, uh, counseling, and obviously working to to have a better job for people where they feel like they're part of a community and they're working to make their community better and that they have a a good, sustainable uh, future. All right, Sam, thank you so much for your comment. And uh, we're going to head to break now, but I want to thank WNPR's Harriet Jones. You can hear her story on how the response to the opioid crisis in Connecticut and nationwide differs from previous drug epidemics in our country. It's one of several stories in a series this week on WNPR. You can find out more on our website, WNPR.org. You can also join the conversation. Has addiction touched your life? Have you been able to get help through some programs from through the state agency of the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What does the opioid overdose crisis in our state look like? TrendCT.org, a publication of the Connecticut News Project, did a deep dive into local data from the chief medical examiner's office. We'll tweet out a link to that report, but here's a quick snapshot. Overdose deaths from opioids is more common among whites than any other racial and ethnic group. From 2012 to 2015, people who died from heroin overdoses were between the ages of 21 to 45 years old. The death rates for whites and Hispanics increased while deaths from heroin overdoses among blacks decreased. Seventy percent of all overdoses happened in someone's home. And rural and poor communities suffer many more overdose deaths than urban and suburban areas in Connecticut. When you look at our cities, Waterbury, Hartford, and New Haven had the most overdoses. There's also been a spike in the northwest corner. And according to TrendCT.org, areas with a lower median income had higher overdose rates. So what does the state do with that data? To help answer the question, again, in studio with me is Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman. She's commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health. Health and Addiction Services. She was uh, appointed and nominated by uh, Governor Malloy in the spring of 2015. Again, a lot of uh, data points. Um, tell us how your agency takes that data and figures out where people need the help. How do you get the, those services to them? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. So, so one thing that we've done recently 
is we we were able to use our data and identify several high-need areas, and we use that data to apply for a grant uh, at SAMHSA. So SAMHSA is the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, and so uh, we actually applied for this grant, and uh, and the focus of it was to be able to develop suboxone clinics in these different high-need areas. And I'm pleased to say we were actually awarded the grant. So uh, we now have resources coming into the state to be able to enhance uh, suboxone, uh, which is a form of medication-assisted treatment in five different high-need areas of the state. So we're really pleased about that. Can you explain quickly the difference between suboxone and methadone? Yeah, yeah. So um, methadone is um, a medication that's uh, used to help treat uh, heroin or opioid addiction. And, and um, typically the doses are given daily. Um, so an individual may go to um, a methadone clinic and receive their doses daily. Um, whereas Suboxone uh, is a medication that um, can be uh, administered often. It's, it's a, like a, either a tablet or a, a strip that goes under the tongue and then it dissolves. Um, but a person only needs to receive that um, monthly um, or sometimes even less depending upon, um, you know, depending upon their dosage. Um, and so that's one of the differences. Um, but essentially in terms of how they act, they both help to reduce uh, cravings and uh, the uh, some of the withdrawal symptoms individuals may may experience, um, and research shows that either one of those forms, whether it's uh, methadone or buprenorphine, um, that each of those, along with uh, recovery supports and counseling, uh, can help individuals achieve long-term recovery. Uh, so that's certainly one of our priority areas to increase people's access to different forms of medication-assisted treatment. Joining us in studio also is uh, Rebecca Allen. She's Senior Program Manager at the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery, or CCAR, um, a former heroin user who's been in recovery for more than 18 years. Rebecca, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. And so um, you're, we're talking again about the, the crisis uh, facing not just Connecticut, but states around uh, this country um, with uh, opioids and heroin. Um, you used heroin years ago. Um, tell me, you know, what how you were able to get into recovery and, and stay there. So I've been in recovery for the last 18 years, and I, I look at myself as a person in long-term recovery, and it's been over 18 years since the last time I used heroin. And I really struggled. You know, my addiction took off very quickly, and um, probably for the next 8 to 10 years, I really struggled to um, get clean and sober. So for me, I talk a, a lot about how, you know, my, my journey, it, it included incarceration. And I wasn't able to stop using heroin without being in jail, you know. I tried to go to treatment. I tried to go to detox, but I never really um, was able to put any clean time behind me. So for me, my, my journey to recovery really started in prison. And... Um, like I said, I, I really struggled for about 10 years with this, and I knew that I had to put in some time, you know. So instead of, you know, being released from prison, going back home or, or wherever, I decided to go into a long-term treatment program. And I was there for a year, and that really helped me to kind of stabilize. So I was able to start working. I was able to, you know, participate in treatment, counseling, that kind of stuff. So um, that's how I started my recovery journey. And when we look at um, heroin 18 years ago and, and today, um, what are some of the programs or services or lack thereof right now that could be helping or, or this epidemic? 
Well, definitely Suboxone, I believe, is a really um, a great tool now um, that we didn't have back then. Yes, we had methadone, um, but for me personally, I, I was on the program at one time. It didn't really work for me. Methadone is very sedating, and uh, being an addict, um, that's really what I wanted to – that's the state I wanted to be in. So for me, being on methadone – I wasn't happy being at a small dose. I wanted to, you know, be feel that high that I felt with heroin. So I was on high doses and I just couldn't, you know, I was fine. I wasn't using heroin, but yet I couldn't really participate in anything else. So I couldn't, I wasn't employable. I wasn't really, you know, present in the rest of my life. Suboxone is different. It's not as sedating as methadone. So I think it works for a lot of people. And I think they're able to, to you know, be on it and, and get stabilized but yet participate in the rest of the things in life such as, you know, family, work, um, you know, other things. When we talk about Suboxone, I'll turn back to the commissioner of DEMAS, Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman. Is this something that um, all people, no matter what their income level, can access? You know, yes. And increasingly we're looking to uh, – increase the availability of, of um, Suboxone within the state system of care. Uh, there are um, some limits. So physicians can really only prescribe up to uh, work with 30 people the first year and then up to 100 people the second year. Uh, and so as a state, we're really looking to increase our number of physicians who are able to prescribe so that there's a, even a greater availability of physicians who prescribe uh, Suboxone. Uh, some people suggest there's a shortage that you know, they're not able to uh, access uh, or to find a physician that prescribes uh, Suboxone. Why is there a limit for f- the number of physicians that can prescribe? You know, so it's a, it's part of a federal regulation. So because it's a somewhat newer medication, for example, uh, methadone has been around since the 60s. Suboxone is really a newer medication, I think 2001, 2002, something like that. So, um, so it's really a newer medication that is still being regulated um, federally. Uh, and so... A physician, in order to prescribe Suboxone, has to go through a training and then be certified. And once they're certified, the first year they can only see 30 individuals. Um, The second year they can go up to uh, 100. Uh, And there's new legislation that recently passed through CARA. It's a a, a new federal piece of legislation uh, that will allow uh, physicians to go up to 200 individuals. So I think that alone, once the regulations related to that are disseminated to different states, that alone will help us here in Connecticut because that means that providers that they're at, that are at their cap can now work with more individuals. Also in studio with us is Kelvin Young, Assistant Executive Director of Advocacy Unlimited and Director of Toivo. Did I say that correct, Kelvin? Yes, you did. <laughs> You're also a former heroin and cocaine user. You've been in recovery for more than seven years. Welcome to the yes, show. Thank you, Lucy. Pleasure to be here. So um, obviously we're talking a lot about Suboxone. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me um, how you got through your struggle with addiction. Well, at, after many years of battling with um, depression and anxiety, uh, I found my freedom from from heroin, from cocaine, from alcohol, um, even prescription drugs. Uh, when I went to to prison, just like Rebecca, and you know, for me, you know, I was in a a drug treatment program within the prison that was sponsored uh, by Demas, and it really helped me to uh, look within, you know, to understand the the science of addiction and why I became so uh, addicted to uh, my substance and behaviors of choice in the first place. Um, but really also what helped me out in this drug treatment program was um, the holistic pra- practices that I learned, um, the meditation 
and then yoga and then the creative expression, right? And all the different holistic approaches um, that was available for me. And I had a lot of misconceptions about these these holistic practices, but I had an opportunity to um, step out of my comfort zone and try something new and try something different. And I, allowed to, I was able to understand um, me a little bit more better. And, and within prison and, and learning all the, the knowledge I learned in a drug treatment program and also utilizing the tools such as yoga and meditation, I was able to find a sense of calmness and inner peace being in prison. Uh, but most importantly, I was able to understand the root causes of my addiction. And from my experience, I learned that unresolved emotional uh, pain, um, distress, um, from experiences I, I went through in my life was at the root of my addiction. So um, it was the pain that I was trying to uh, relieve from. And I was looking for something outside of myself to connect with. Kevin. And I did. I wanted to ask, um, mm-hmm. you know, we spoke earlier in the show about um, how um, the drug epidemic of the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. and how African-Americans often were, um, you know, vilified and mm. sent to prison to deal, even when they had addiction, maybe trauma in their lives. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's been a shift. Can you talk about um, that shift and what that means to you seeing that now? Absolutely. It was, you know, I remember I was being young. Um, I have four older brothers. And when the crack epidemic hit um, our communities, it hit it hard. It, it personally affected um, three of my brothers. And, and a couple of my brothers went to prison as a result. And from watching them, you know, smoke crack, um, the lifestyle and the behavior they was participating in, um, I vowed never to to try crack. Um but at the same time, I got into other other drugs such as cocaine and heroin. But um, just seeing how it really tore my family apart, um, other families apart, um, it was very frustrating. And now the racial disparities with being caught with crack cocaine, you know, and rather rather powder cocaine, it, it's just it's like wow, you know, it, it just that's just racism in in, in our face right there, and we're. You know, getting caught with crack is, is um, you know, get penalized much more. And so-called war on drugs was really a war on people of color, war on um, people that became addicted to uh, these particular drugs. And now you see um, now, you know, the, academ- uh, um, you know, the heroin epidemic, um, people were dying back in the 90s when I was using heroin. I remember Tingle with Cash came out um, in the 90s that was hit in urban areas a particular form of heroin where people were dying in the streets of, of the Bronx and New York City and, and Hartford. And, and there was no, no um, you know, uh, treatment uh, per se available then. You know, so people were dying on heroin for a long time now. And now where I see it, 2016, where, you know, it's not just in the urban areas no more. It's more in the suburb, uh, suburban areas now. And, you know, it's not just... Um, you know, lawyers' kids are, are overdosing. You know, politician kids are, are overdosing. Doctor kids are overdosing. So now, you know, instead of looking at it as a, a criminal offense, let's look at it as a, as a public health issue. You know, let's um, not criminalize, but send treatment, which is great. But it, it is a little frustrating to, to see this experience happening. And although as a recovery leader, I want people to get uh, treatment. I want people to get support for their experience. But just seeing the differences of how it was uh, back then in the 80s and how it cracked um, personally affected my, my life and, and how the situations are now where, um, you know, they're looking to access treatment for uh, the heroin epidemic. 
I want to take some calls now. Again, today we're talking about, again, the opioid epidemic in Connecticut and nationwide. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Dominique has been holding from Norwich. Dominique, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Thank you, Lucy. Um, My comment um, has to do with, um, oh, uh, by the way, I appreciate um, what the previous callers have said about uh, the community, um, you know, how how we're being so impacted by being disconnected. And I'm glad that people are talking about this and that drug users are being um, destigmatized and people are starting to see how much of a failure the drug war has been. And I I want to point out that it's failing um, not just the people who are getting addicted and dying, but also the communities um, that are most impacted by dealing. And, and I, I'm seeing this as somebody who's seen it up close. Um, I, um, I admit that I was an enabler of uh, a heroin user for a few years, and um, you know, a person who is very close to me and who is now in recovery thanks to Suboxone. And, um, but I, I've seen up close that, that the communities where um, people go to, to buy these drugs and where they, you know, I'm talking mainly about Hartford, uh, in relation to the Norwich area, that's that's where a lot of the heroin in this community comes from. Um, I see that the the people there don't have the kind of economic opportunities that they need, and that in in a sense, economically, they're being forced and funneled into drug dealing as a as a way to survive. And um, I see it being passed down from parent to child and from cousin to cousin, and. I'm worried that um, as we start tackling the demand side of, of the drug epidemic and trying to treat the addicts, um, you know, I, I really don't want us to ignore the fact that economically speaking, we need to take away um, the drivers for people in, in the cities, people who live in poverty, to be turning to drug dealing as a, as a way to make cash. And um, um, I'll take it off the air, <laughs> any comments that you have. Thank you. All right, Dominique, thank you for your call. Uh, so Commissioner uh, Delphin Rittman from Demas, you know, obviously she's talking about um, to help people before they feel like the need, that the only way that they can make money is to sell drugs. Can we talk about, you know, some of the steps? Obviously, you work with other agencies to, to make sure people are staying in school, that if they're in, in jail, that they're connected with services uh, before and after they leave so that they can get a job. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So uh, so as part of the DEMA system of care, we have a, a broad range of services and supports um, to help people uh, both achieve long-term recovery, but even people who may be uh, not necessarily grappling with addiction, but maybe mental health issues uh, to uh, to really be able to um, access these different community services and supports uh, that might reduce the likelihood of their uh, then selling drugs or, or some other uh, ways to to gain resources. Um, So we do have employment uh, programs, and so these are programs that will help people uh, with resume writing, with um, job coaching, uh, even with um, reducing some of their feelings of either anxiety or depression or other mental health or addiction um, issues they might be experiencing um, so that they're able to work. Uh, And so I think that's an important uh, piece. So giving people other avenues um, to be able to support themselves. And and that's an important part of, of recovery. You know, this past fiscal year, uh, we saw lots of state agencies having to make cuts and uh, dealing with layoffs because of Connecticut's budget crisis. Um, how much money has Demas had, um, you know, to find savings, and what programs were cut? Um, so we uh, we cut about uh, f- uh, fifty five million or so, give or take. 
Um, and some of our aim with that really was to try to um, not uh, to, to minimize the impact on the system. Our, our aim really has been to, you know, certainly live within the resources we have because the the current um, economic um, situation in the state is such that uh, we really do need to work to find efficiencies, but also to work within the resources that we have. Um, and so one of the aims that, that we um, had was to try to not touch uh, direct services. So we reduced things like um, our Valley View Cafe at, at uh, CVH Hospital. Um, and that made sense because by reducing Valley View, we were able to keep some of the other direct services intact. Um, we were able to uh, place many of the individuals who work there at the cafe in work programs, uh, place them in other uh, work programs uh, elsewhere at the hospital. Um, so that's just one example of, of some of the um, areas that we cut. Um, I'm looking at the, the Connecticut Mirror, ctmirror.org, and, you know, in a time when we have fewer and fewer uh, capital reporters, you know, the CT Mirror does a really great job tracking what's happening at the state capitol. Um, you mentioned the Valley um, Riverview Cafe, yeah, that, Valley View Cafe, Valley View Cafe that was cut. But I'm also looking at things like community recovery services operated by Norwich-based Southeastern Mental Health Authority. So this is a team of, of social workers, nurses, mental health workers um, who are out in the community providing intensive support for people with substance abuse, mental health disorders. Also a homeless outreach program, the Southeastern Mental Health Authorities program. Um, that was also cut, I believe. So when we're talking about um, making sure there's community supports, I mean, obviously because of the budget crisis, you got to make cuts. But I mean, aren't those important programs when we know that that opioid and heroin are taking the lives of people and affecting so many? I mean, why are these cut, these programs also getting cut? Yeah, no, absolutely. Those are those are vital programs. And in many instances where we made reductions, we we cut in areas where there were other community services and supports that could that could fill those needs or that could carry out some of the um, activities of those programs. Um, and so absolutely, those are uh, important programs. And what I can say is we have uh, a, a remaining uh, rich network of community services and supports for um, individuals that are struggling with mental health or addictions. So um, we have recovery drop-in centers, and uh, Rebecca can, can talk more about that. Uh, we fund CCAR, so the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. Uh, and so there are drop-in centers all over the state. Um, or three, three around the state. Uh, we also fund, and, and Seeker also has a, um, a hotline, so individuals can call in at any point and, and talk to other people in recovery about their experiences. Um, as I mentioned, we have the, um, the um, employment services, housing services, um, Toivo, we fund Toivo where, where Kelvin works, and Toivo offers a wonderful range of um, services and programs for individuals to uh, to to really help with their recovery. Mm -hmm. So meditation, and, and talk, uh, Calvin can talk more about some of those programs. Um, we're going to have to go to break soon, but, um, you know, what about treatment beds? So we know the importance of detox and then yeah. connecting people to rehab. We hear from families who have um, struggled with addiction that it's hard sometimes to find a, a bed or a, a place in a long-term rehab facility. Um, how are these people... Well, how are they getting helped if, if we're having to cut services like treatment beds? I think that was also yeah. a cut. Yeah, and so we we very consciously did, did not cut our detox beds um, because we are aware that we're, we're currently in, um, you know, a heroin and opiate crisis. So we uh, left, left those beds intact. 
Um, and there still are a range of um, you know, residential um, type programs statewide for individuals to uh, be able to access if needed. Um, one thing that, that I also um, often like to tell people that, you know, sometimes we get recommendations that, well, we need uh, programs that are a year or longer. Um, and um, those, those may not always be the best option for folks because it means that a person is disconnected from their community, from their family, from their, uh, the, the natural rhythms of their daily life. Uh, and so when they are discharged from that program, it means that they then have to go back to the their daily stressors, and that really can put them at risk for um, for relapse. Um, and so what we really advocate, we've worked to develop um, certainly the detox services um, and the other intensive services, but we also offer a range of community services and support so that people can um, – can begin to achieve long-term recovery while they're in their natural daily settings. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking with uh, Demas Commissioner Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman. Also, advocates Kelvin Young and Rebecca Allen are here in studio. We're going to take your calls and comments after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at the state's role in helping confront the opioid crisis. We're going to take your calls now. Stephanie Stephanie is calling from Norwich. You're on where we live, Stephanie. Oh, hi. Thanks. I'm going to try to get through this without starting to cry. <laughs> so um, my brother is currently, um, he's decreasing his methadone dose. His um, drug of choice was Oxycontin. And um, he's getting some mental health support. But, you know, he's in his mid-40s and he's come to live with me and my family. And... Um, we find that there's just there's not support for the collective whole, like the family and the person suffering from the addiction. So oftentimes there's this huge disconnect between what his needs are and what we think his needs are. Um, and it seems like, well, here in Norwich, um, you know, where things have been cut, trying to find a program that supports everyone so that the, the person can meet recovery has been very, very challenging. And some of the local um, organizations that are available to us, you know, he's not quite at that level. He, you know, he lost his job, but he's got another job. He makes just over minimum wage and maybe gets 20 hours a week. So he doesn't make enough money to be able to live on his own. So we just feel like we're just kind of stuck in limbo somewhere. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for your call. Um, I'll turn to the advocates. Uh, First, Rebecca Allen, maybe you could help uh, Stephanie with some uh, um, advice on how the family as a whole gets support when they're trying to help someone who's struggling with addiction. Sure. So um, at CCAR, we we struggle with calls from family members um, looking for supports for, you know, their loved ones or themselves. And there's not a lot out there for families, but but there are there are services, there are programs and support groups. Um, I know that at CCAR, we, we you know we welcome family members that might want to use our space to come in and start a support group. Um, and I can also tell Stephanie that it takes some time. I know for myself, it started slowly. So you know, I, I had to kind of build up my my employment skills. Um, I ended up going back to school. Um, but these things take time. So, you know, just being able to support your brother however you can in the best way that you can um, will make a difference and to get support for you and your family as well. 
Um, uh, Kelvin Young is here from uh, Advocacy Unlimited and director of Toivo. Um, talk about some of the ways that you know families. Again, they're under a lot of stress. You know, you know uh, addiction is a is a tough thing uh, to deal with. The you know the roller coaster. You know this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what can Stephanie do in her family? Well, thank you for sharing, uh, Stephanie. And and like Rebecca said, it it is a big challenge for. Um, a lot of people, um, their families and the people that's um, experiencing addiction uh, to get the support that they need. But, um, you know, there is Al-Anon, there is other 12-step uh, programs to support. And and what I've learned from my, my personal experience and, and even experiences with my family that's still dealing with addiction is is really um, meeting them where they're at and offering them that love and that support and truly connecting with them on, on that level. Um, I really believe that, um, you know, we... we, we we get so isolated in our addiction a lot of times, and, and the shame and guilt keeps us in a vicious cycle of addiction. But just really uh, providing a, a, a loving space, um, even though it might be challenging at times, but providing that loving space and, and, and just really holding the space uh, for the in- individual that's experiencing um, that pain. I want to take another call. Uh, Max is calling from Preston. Max, you're on where we live. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I really just wanted to you know, point out the fact that it is an epidemic, and it's all around. It's not just here in Connecticut. Um, I've, I've got my finger in places everywhere. I've go, I go down to Long Island, and I hear about a lot of things down there in Long Island. Particularly, I wanted to call about, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Governor LePage of Maine has received national headlines currently with his issues on race and the drug war and this, that, and the other. The biggest thing is, is I feel, I can't remember if it is a, a police station in Maine, I think Bangor, Maine, they are taking the initiative to assist in recovery instead of doling out punishment for, for addiction. And I feel that that is a big thing in terms of recovery. It's not about punishing and you know, removing that stigma of fear of, of, of receiving repercussion for doing something wrong, especially in particular when it comes to uh, response to an OD. You people fear reporting an OD or getting an OD taken care of because of the fear of repercussion. So, well, uh, Max, I just want to ask you to hold because we just have a couple of minutes, but I want to talk about a law in Connecticut. I believe we have a Good Samaritan law. So, if somebody is ODing and you call the police or the paramedics, um, they're not going to come after you. Is that right, Commissioner? Yes, that's absolutely right. So, the Good Samaritan law will, if if an individual uh, calls the police, they are not held liable in any kind of way. Or if an individual, this other legislation, if, if somebody um, administers Narcan uh, and, you know, they also will not be held liable um, in any kind of way. So there are laws to, to protect people um, who are trying to save individuals that are, that are struggling. I want to take another quick call. Uh, Paul, we just have a couple of minutes. Paul from West Hartford, can you give us your question or comment in under a minute? Yes, I can. Actually, okay, so I'm calling because I'd like to say as somebody in recovery for many, many years and being on the front lines of this whole opiate epidemic that's going on in Connecticut, first of all, I'd like to talk about how Suboxone or Comment is mostly a cash pay industry and why are doctors having to need a license to prescribe Suboxone, but there's clinics and doctors everywhere that can prescribe as many opiates as they want, but it's very difficult for people I know to get Suboxone and the same thing that happened with Narcan many years ago when Narcan wasn't distributed to the public because it was seen as enabling addicts and it was 
actually saving lives and Suboxone can save lives. And now Narcan's accepted as something that can save lives and everybody's gung-ho about it. But there needs to be a massive overhaul of the system of licensing for Suboxone doctors because so many people need this drug and it's so hard to get. All right, Paul. Well, thank you so much for doing that under a minute. I'll let uh, Commissioner uh, uh, Miriam Delphin-Rittman respond. I think we talked earlier that it's from the federal level, right, that, yeah. to get more Suboxone prescribing doctors. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so Suboxone is regulated federally, and so there is uh, legislation that recently passed, the CARA uh, Act, and that's a, f- a federal piece of legislation that will now increase the numbers of individuals providers can see from 100 uh, to 200. So the, so the limit is, is increased in terms of the numbers of people doctors can see. And he also alluded to the fact that, you know, Narcan or Naloxone, a lot of people know about it now. There are laws such as in Connecticut where you can get that. It's getting more uh, readily available in pharmacies. But um, maybe our Connecticut delegation, our congressional delegation needs to work harder to get Suboxone more into the hands of people who need it. Yeah. So the, the legislation and the governor have uh, each year, they've passed different laws that uh, related to related to uh, Narcan. So now Narcan is available at most pharmacies around the state. Um, if you go to the Department of Consumer Protection website, there's an interactive map there that will let people know what which pharmacies uh, they can go to to get Narcan. And again, most pharmacies around the state have it now. I want to thank Commissioner Dr. Miriam Delphin-Rittman of the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Also, Kelvin Young, Assistant Executive Director of Advocacy Unlimited and Director of Toivo, and Rebecca Allen, Senior Program Manager at the Connecticut community for addiction recovery. The hour goes by fast. I want to appreciate you for your perspective. And we can continue this conversation on our website, also on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.